We're going to talk more about the rules when it comes to crossing the Canada-U.S. border. Yesterday on the program, we started the show talking with Brian Calder in Point Roberts. He talked about some of the confusion about how it can be different every time somebody goes across the border there, depending on whether or not the border officer has the most updated guidelines. He talked about a very threatening letter that he received after going across the border last time. So we wanted to take a look at kind of the bigger picture and join Joining us to talk about that is Len Saunders, an immigration lawyer with Blaine Immigration. Len, thanks so much for being back on the program. No problem. How are you, Jill? Very well. How about you? Fine, thanks. I know you are on the U.S. side, and a lot of this confusion or a lot of the questions that we have often pertain to the rules in Canada, coming into Canada. But what are you hearing as far as the rules as they stand and how they're being applied to people? Well, definitely mass confusion and absolute inconsistency. And that's why I think, like, there's no Canadians in Blaine now. It's gone back to what it was a year ago or maybe even last summer. So many people hear these stories on the news of Canadians coming down and trying to return with either the 72-hour exemption, which is gone, the 24-hour exemption, which I think stopped yesterday, because I try to keep track on this myself, and it's like a moving target. So many people hear of these stories of the inconsistencies returning to Canada, and they just throw up their arms and they go, I'm not going to go down there. So at this point, I think the majority of Canadians who do come to the U.S., they're coming for longer trips. They're going down at Christmas time. I bumped into a ton of Canadians in Kona when I was there who, you know, despite the Trudeau travel, you know, don't travel over Christmas, still went on their trips. Lots of Canadians going down to Palm Springs. But it's definitely stopped the day travelers. And I frequently still go to the Peace Arch Park. When I look down where the monument is, there's very few cars crossing back and forth. So it's basically eliminated these, these recent kind of inconsistencies, these, you know, exemptions being eliminated. It's, it's gone back to square one where Canadians are scared to come down, even for a short trip, because they're worried going back, do they have to get tested? Can they get tested? Because it's very difficult to find facilities, especially near the border, that are available at a moment's notice. Sometimes it takes days to get in to get a COVID test. So I think a lot of Canadians are just kind of hunkered down in the lower mainland waiting until maybe there's going to be another reopening in the foreseeable future. Uh, you mentioned as well, so the, the exemptions that are in place and the 72-hour one, which came back briefly and then was suspended once again. It seems like the essential, the, the one that came in that allowed people for essentials, and I think it was prompted because of the flooding and some of the extreme weather uh, on both sides of the border. So people were allowed, especially when the roads were, uh, were unpassable in B.C., people were allowed to come down for essentials, gas and food. That's the one, I think, that quietly was eliminated yesterday. Well, exactly. And I heard of, you know, someone would come down and get gas and no problems going back, but they would come down and pick up their packages and go back. And the officer would say, I'm sorry, but if you also got gas, you'd be okay. But because you only got your packages from your mail facility, it's not okay. And now you have to quarantine for 14 days. And It's those stories you hear. I hear them from all around town. I constantly get phone calls from Canadian clients 
asking me for advice. And half the time I throw up my hands and say, I don't know myself. I really don't. And so I think unless there's real clarity, so many Canadians are just avoiding the border right now. Well, and like you said, too, it, if you, even if you plan ahead and you're OK with the expense for whatever reason you have to go or you're planning to go from Canada to the U.S. and back, it, there's we've heard some horror stories as well from people saying, I even booked a test and the test it got canceled for whatever reason. And then what do you do? Like you said, you can't really get one just at a moment's notice and get those those results and then be able to come back. Oh, I get those calls. So when that happens, they call me and Blaine and they say, where can I go? You must have contacts. How do I get my test? These are people who literally have flown into Bellingham or they're driving north on the I-5 and they realize their test isn't going to happen. It either hasn't come back or it's got canceled and they're panicking because they don't know what to do. It's, it's amazing, Jill. Here we are the border's almost been closed for two years. I remember when it first closed back in the spring of 2020, and I heard that it was going to be closed maybe until the end of that year. And when I told you and your colleagues, there'd be gasps when people would say, what, it's going to be closed until the end of the year? It's been double that and no end in sight. It's, I'll tell you right now, I'm shocked it's still closed. And right now, yeah, people can come down if they get tested, but your average Canadian who comes to the U.S. comes shopping, they get gas, they get groceries or whatever. Yeah, they maybe take one vacation every year or two, but it's definitely, you know, Blaine once again is decimated. I don't see any Canadian cars in this town. I saw lots for that one-month period where they had the 72-hour exemption. It was packed. The mail places had lines out the door, the gas stations, the banks. It's back to Deadsville and Blaine right now. I also received a question about the exemption for Point Roberts. And again, that's what we were talking about yesterday, because even with that exemption that's in place, Brian Calder was talking about the fact he got a very threatening letter saying he had to quarantine, he had to test. If not, he could face fines and, and the letter that didn't really seem to go with the exemption. But then I was also sent a, a snippet from an order that, that it appears that the exemption, so the exemption is a fully vaccinated person who enters Canada from the remote communities of Hyder, Alaska, Northwest Angle, Minnesota, or Point Roberts. Uh, that's where the exemption is. But it looks like that exemption is going to stop at the end of this month. Well, and those are the inconsistencies, right? Apparently, the federal government doesn't talk to their workers at the border. And in some respects, I feel sorry for these CBSA Canadian officers, because for them, they're trying to interpret a moving target here. And, you know, I, I think with these inconsistent policies, these exemptions, a lot of people just throw their hands up and say, you know what, I'm not going to travel. But we need to get back to normalcy at some point, right? You look at the Peace Arch Monument. May these gates never be closed. Well, they're closed. They've been closed for two years. There needs to be some common sense. There needs to be some sort of, you know, opening up of the border. What's going to happen with cruise ships come the spring? Are they going to be traveling back and forth? Are Americans going to go up there and get on the cruise ships? These are all the questions that the Canadian public needs to start answering or asking the politicians, because eventually people are going to be sick and tired of the closures. I'd like to come up there. I still haven't been up to Canada in almost two years, and I'm a Canadian.
<laughs> well, and also, I mean, one of the questions too, and I've certainly been getting email about this from people saying, what, what exactly are we hoping to accomplish with the border being closed, like you said, with this PCR test requirement coming back into Canada? We're seeing other countries that are really relaxing the testing requirements for traveling. We're not keeping the virus out at this point. It's already here. And if we still have these rules when we have 90% of our population vaccinated, at what point do we ever reopen the border? That's exactly, you took the words out of my mouth. That is exactly what I've been saying. At what point are they going to finally reopen the border so we can go back to normalcy? Like, it's just, this is never ending. Eventually, somebody has to wake up and say, let's come up with a plan and just reopen it. And there we go. What are the rules right now then? And I know what, what's keeping Canadians out really is the requirements coming back into Canada. What are the rules right now for Canadians either flying or driving into the United States? So flying, it's very consistent. You have to show that you're fully vaccinated and have a COVID test. In order to enter the U.S. via land border, border crossing, you're supposed to be fully vaccinated. But in almost three months of having that rule, started November the 8th, coming into the U.S., I've yet to have one Canadian asked at the land border whether they're vaccinated. The American officers aren't the vaccination police. They refuse to ask. So, you know, you know apparently there's inconsistencies coming into this country too, right? So that's where people get very frustrated. Right. So, so driving in, then you're supposed to be fully vaccinated, but it sounds like you probably won't be questioned, but you don't have to show a test or anything. No, oh, definitely no test, right. but you're supposed to be fully vaccinated. But every time a Canadian comes into my office in Blaine, the first question I say to them is, were you asked if you're vaccinated? Every single person has said to me, no, actually they didn't. And I'm like, it's bizarro land. They have a policy, but it's inconsistent. Nobody follows it. And, you know, it's so frustrating having to explain to clients, I don't know why, but this is what happens. Maybe, you know, maybe they, you know, they just don't care. Who knows? But it's the policy, but it's not being implemented. So, All right. Well, Len, once again, thank you so much for joining us and uh, we'll talk to you again soon, but thanks for your time today. Thanks, Jill. Have a great day. Well, we've been talking a fair amount about the new fees that are in place in Vancouver, the 25-cent fee for takeout cups, the the fees for paper bags, the ban on plastic bags, and the minimum that needs to be charged for reusable bags. The policy's actually been sent back to staff in Vancouver for a second look because there were a lot of, shall we say, unintended consequences. And it appeared right out of the gate that it wasn't actually having the desired effect. Well, in Surrey, there is also a new 25 cent fee. This is for brown paper bags, but it too is facing some criticism. Joining us now is Brenda Locke, a Surrey City Councillor. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for having me, Jill. Uh, Before we get to some of the reaction and what people are saying about this, can you explain a little bit about how this fee came into place and how it became that the 25 cent fee is being charged for brown paper bags in Surrey? Sure. So Surrey was one of the uh, early adopters of of the whole um, issue around single-use plastic bags and single-use items. And and so we were kind of one of the first out the gates on this. And, and one of the issues that has come very clear is, as you said, the unintended consequence was its impact on the restaurant and food service industry directly. Um, not not the grocery store sector, but 
the uh, the fast food outlets or or any delivery outlets and and having fees for the bags that they use. And what have you been hearing from people then about that? Uh, well, I can tell you it, it hasn't been positive. <laughs> there has been a great deal of pushback from the public. Um, Jill, even my own family, has been uh, very clear to me they're not happy that they have to pay 25 cents when they get their uh, whatever, their their fries or their, their burger in a bag. And... Um, so that has been a challenge, but the public is generally pretty upset about it, and and they just see it as a as a grab, and they don't know why. Uh, so this is a, a bylaw that was was brought in to ban plastic bags, which we're seeing more and more places do. So was it an oversight when the bylaw was brought in? It, nobody thought through the fact that when you're at a grocery store, you could bring in a reusable bag, you can have a cart if you want to, and take it home with you. Whereas it, when you're at a fast food restaurant, you don't really have that choice. Exactly. I mean, there is uh, not the ability to give um, a recyclable container to a to a food service into a, a clean food service area. So um, I think it was just uh, an oversight and, and just, you know, the case of unintended consequences. And I think it's something that we uh, should correct, we need to correct, and that is just to suspend the implementation of the fee for the restaurant sector only. I'm not talking generally, I'm just talking about the restaurant sector. They've been through enough as it is. I, I think uh, we need to be as as um, easy on them and on the public as we can right now. And how easy or difficult, I suppose, would it be to go back into that bylaw and tweak it so the restaurant sector is excluded? You know, that is, uh, so what I did was a notice of motion. That means they have two weeks. Our staff have a couple of weeks before this comes before us for a final vote, which will be on the 14th of of uh, February. It would be a, a great uh, Valentine's Day gift, I think, for, for the uh, fast food sector especially, but I think all uh, restaurants, because everybody's doing so much takeaway food right now. And when this fee was brought in, uh, in Vancouver, the fees go back to the businesses with the idea the businesses use that money for environmentally friendly initiatives. Is that similar to Surrey or where does the money go? Yeah, I think that's it just goes back to the business. The problem is that, um, and I've heard from uh, from the restaurant sector, it's it's been a challenge for them. First of all, it's uh, offensive to their customers, so they're taking that. So from an administration point of view, they're finding it quite challenging. And is there enforcement as far as if a business or say a restaurant is found to not be charging the 25 cents for the bag, what happens? Well, certainly there can be. I don't know if there has been in Surrey, but as of January first of uh, this year uh, the the uh, fee fee for the bags was implemented and and I know because I've been at uh, at some restaurants where they actually say the city of Surrey is charging you 25 cents or enforcing this 25 cent charge which is um, it's pretty challenging I mean this all also dovetails with the provincial legislation so actually the 25 cent a charge is is dovetailed with the provincial uh, legislation, all well intended, 
all this is you know the ban on plastics and single use is all well intended uh it's just you know there the the challenge was for the restaurant sector right okay and when you say it dovetails on the provincial legislation what specific legislation so the um the the provincial legislation the ministry of the environment uh implemented uh, legislation that all municipalities um, that are that are adopting the plastic bag ban have to adhere to. So um, it's part of the provincial legislation to reduce plastics in the province. Okay. Does it seem strange? Here we have two major cities, Vancouver and Surrey, where, like you said, the, these bylaws came in, these policies came in, they're well-intentioned. The overreaching cause is, is to be good to the environment, to get these things out of the landfill. But no one thought about the restaurant industry. No one thought about people who are homeless or on very fixed incomes that suddenly uh, saw a bag or a takeout order from a restaurant go up by 28 cents, that this was never considered um well i think that that's part of the problem with being an early adopter of it and my guess is yeah we just didn't look at all of those pieces going in into uh the ban certainly the restaurant sector i will tell you i've uh, talked with them they did uh they did raise the flag on this one but um you know i guess Oh, we lost Brenda. We, we lost uh, City uh, Councillor Brenda Locke there. Uh, we're going to open up the phone lines on this topic. We'll try and get uh, the councillor back uh, on the line. We are also going to open up the phone lines, though, if you live in Surrey or if you live in Vancouver. Uh, once we finish chatting with Councillor Brenda Locke, uh, we're going to open up the phone lines and get your take on this, especially if you are one of the people who has been taken aback when getting that takeout order or being at a place where you can't not take the bag and having to pay that fee. Uh, Councillor Locke is back with us. Sorry, Councillor, the the phone line just dropped off there, but you were kind of mid-sentence saying that you did hear from the restaurant industry. Oh, yes, I have talked to the restaurant industry, and I know they they certainly did raise the uh, red flag with with government, both the the, uh, province and some cities. I I don't know that they directly uh, talked to the city of Surrey, but they um, certainly have have raised the red flag that this would be a challenge and I guess uh, just in everybody's zeal to uh, to support the reduction of plastics they move forward. Uh, any uh, indication at this point votes on Surrey City Council tend to go a certain way and you don't need a, a, rel- a very good crystal ball to see that. Uh, any indication at this point how much support there is to repeal this from the restaurant industry? I, I'm I'm very hopeful that uh, my colleagues will will feel as I do, and uh, will look to um, to support the, uh, the 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 elimination of this for the restaurant sector at this time. Because um, I do know it, it is a hardship both on the uh, restaurant sector and on the public in general. So I'm hopeful. Um, but you're right; we do have a rather polarized uh, polarized city council. So it. Uh, It all remains to be seen, but I am hopeful. All right, Councillor Locke, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much for your time. Appreciate it. Thank you. 
Well, Denmark has become one of the first European Union countries to scrap most of their pandemic restrictions as the country no longer considers the COVID-19 outbreak a socially critical disease. That is the reason given that even though the Omicron variant is still surging in that country, it's not placing a heavy burden on the healthcare system and the country has a high vaccination rate, that according to officials. So what is it like to be in a country where most, if not all, of the restrictions are being lifted. Let's bring in Shane Woodford, freelance journalist who is based in Denmark. Shane, thanks so much for joining us again. Always a pleasure, Jill. Uh, so what are things like there today? Normal. <laughs> uh, sort of near normal. I mean, it's uh, there's a few masks out there, but uh, by and large, it's uh, you go into the grocery stores, you go shopping, you do your thing, and it is like there is almost no pandemic except for uh, you know, some antibacterial hand soap that's basically at the front of every business in a grocery store or whatever you walk into. So uh, in the space of 24 hours, we've gone from largely masked and being really cautious to largely unmasked and sort of putting a foot in these tepid waters. Hmm. And is it a feeling of, for, for you, is it a feeling of relief, of freeing, a freeing feeling, or is there also some kind of trepidation there? No, <laughs> no, there's definitely trepidation. I mean, look, we're seeing the largest daily COVID numbers we have ever seen. Last week, uh, two record days, over 50,000 cases a day. Today, it was around 45,000. I mean, these are numbers that a few months ago, you someone would have said, oh, Denmark's going to be seeing, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50,000 cases. So I would have laughed in your face. I mean, these numbers are unheard of. Hospitalizations, like general admissions uh, due to COVID, uh, have crashed through the 1,000 mark yesterday for the first time ever in the pandemic. So the calculation, when you think about these two things, you go, well, why is Denmark doing what it's doing? And it's based on a calculation and assumption. And the calculation, Jill, is it looks at intensive care unit numbers and those on a ventilator, and despite absolutely soaring infection numbers, both of those numbers for the past few weeks have gone nowhere but down. We're there the lowest they've been since last summer. Uh, the assumption is that because there's such a high vaccination rate here, over 80% of people have two doses, 60% plus have three, uh, and the Omicron variant is just absolutely ripping through the population. The combination of immunity from recovered infection and immunity from vaccination will team up to instill some level of herd immunity on the population and help us move from a pandemic to an endemic. And we're talking about a country here. What is the population of Denmark? About 6 million? Yeah, just under 5.8. And and do you think, are other countries doing similar similar things as far as relaxing those, those restrictions in, in the same kind of scenario? Like you said, yes, huge daily numbers, but if it's not leading to death and ICU hospitalization, that gets to a point where you can live with this virus. Yeah, that's essentially what they're doing. They're saying, listen, COVID's here to stay. Matter of fact, the uh, the European Centre for Disease Control, which is the overarching EU health authority when it comes to the pandemic and, and all other virus uh, activity, uh, just said in one of its assessments last week that COVID's here to stay. I mean, there's we, we can't have zero COVID. That door is closed. we got to figure out how to live with the virus. So that assumption is now being made across uh, just this evening, a few hours ago, as a matter of fact, 
Norway followed Denmark's lead and largely laid out a plan to lift its restrictions. I expect we'll start to see that pattern throughout Europe, especially as we kind of move through the rest of these winter months and into the fall when the season becomes less against us and more for us, weather warms up, more people outside, virus has a hard time spreading. It's these winter months and we're all jammed inside trying to keep warm when the virus has a heyday. And uh, even our health officials here are already starting to float the idea uh, of a fourth booster shot at a population level here in Denmark timed for the next fall uh, when we move into the winter months again in order to kind of try and head off another COVID explosion. And would that be for everybody or is that, again, looking at the most vulnerable, uh, say, people in long-term care and offering up fourth boosters for that population? No, that's for everybody. Jill, we're already offering fourth round of shots for vulnerable people, people that are immunocompromised or extremely high risk, cancer patients, people that really struggle. They're already having a fourth round of doses here. This would be one for everybody. Basically, the the idea, I mean, they haven't solidified it yet. They're just hinting at it. But uh, the idea sounds like would be it it would be sort of, you know, patterned after the flu shot that we have now where we have this season. Okay, in October, the flu shots go out and somewhere around that time period, uh, they would also time a COVID booster shot to try and head off any winter impact. And how are things then, when we talk about the restrictions being lifted, and like you said, a few masks here and there, uh, does this mean then that as things stand now moving forward, you don't have to show a pass to get into to restaurants and stuff or anything like that? Yeah, so that's a bit tricky. Um, largely, you're right, yes. The Corona Passport system, which was called the Corona Pass here, uh, has largely been lifted. You technically wouldn't have to use it to go anywhere like a restaurant or whatever like you like you would have had uh, just a couple of days ago. Uh, the two wrinkles in that are um, restrictions continue when you're visiting a hospital or a senior's home. In both of those cases, despite the rest of society returning to quote-unquote near normal, uh, in both of those cases, hospitals, seniors' homes, you have to show a corona pass to get in and you have to wear a mask once you're inside. The other thing, too, is there is now sort of a, a responsibility that's been moved onto the private sector. So if I own a restaurant, for example, and I'm feeling, ah, I'm just not, not comfortable with this, I can, as the owner of the restaurant, say I'm putting in a Corona Pass mandate or a mask mandate, and my customers can decide for themselves whether they want to abide by that and use my establishment or not. So there may be a smattering of places that do that. All right. So, but as it stands then, with those restrictions being lifted, there's not going to be kind of a singling out of vaccinated people and non-vaccinated as far as, unless there's places that keep that coronavirus pass, it's not going to be, it's not going to be only vaccinated people can go somewhere and you need to be vaccinated. Yeah, no, you're exactly right. It's going to be basically like, and that goes back to the assumption the government is making on the on the herd immunity and population that uh, whether you're unvaccinated and keep in mind that's a really 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 small pool of people here like a tiny amount of the population uh, but for those people who, who don't want to get vaccinated for whatever reason the government is banking on the fact that the Omicron variant is ripping through the population to such an extent that even the people who aren't getting vaccinated are getting infected and recovering and getting an immune response that way. And what about testing? Is that still something that's going to be available to people? Yeah, absolutely. Denmark is uh, one of the countries that just leads the world in testing. Uh, we're still doing about three to 400,000 tests a day, uh, sort of evenly split more or less between rapid and PCR tests. They just scaled 
rapid test down by about 200,000 a day because the need's just not there. And one of the reasons they're doing that is because uh, they still have rolled out the self-testing program. So, for example, my little guy goes to school. Uh, he's in grade one here. Uh, and because of that, uh, he's encouraged to get tested twice a week. Once at the school, they do testing on Tuesdays. The other, we do it here at home, so we get free self-testing kits. And the same goes for if you're a healthcare worker or you work in seniors' care. The state just gives you uh, a certain amount of tests every week, and you can test yourself at home. So that's taken the onus off of, oh, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, I'm going to go see Aunt Betty, so I better go get a rapid test real quick because I don't have a whole lot of time. A lot of that need has now vanished completely, and so they're having to lower the amount of capacity they have because it's just being unused. All right. And Shane, looking forward then, you kind of mentioned the weather there as well. Does it sound like as long as things continue this way, specifically looking at those hospitalizations and those serious cases, does it seem like going into the spring and the summer, this could look like a more normal year as far as European travel and people getting back to that? I think uh, certainly people hope so, especially in the hospitality and tourism sector, which has just been crippled uh, the last couple of years for obvious reasons. Uh, Whether that happens or not, I don't know. But I mean, the goal for Denmark and I think the EU as a whole is to get back to some level of normalcy. But I mean, you can't as long as COVID's with us, there's going to be some level of caution you've got to take. And airlines, of course, are going to have their rules about what you can and can't do and, and that kind of thing. Uh, but I expect a more or less normal summer. It was normal. It felt like a normal summer here last summer, uh, you know. And as I said, when the seasonal effect goes for you, things look really, really good all of a sudden. People are outside. The sun is shining. COVID has a really hard time spreading uh, as opposed to the winter months. So but then the other fly in the ointment too, Jill, is, is variants. We have a new one here, BA2, which is a subvariant of Omicron. I believe you guys have it there. Uh, study out today and even another one last week points to it being extremely contagious about one to one and a half times that of the parent omicron strain and according to a preprint study i just read out of denmark today it looks like it has about a 10 point higher punch through uh, for infection rates among fully vaccinated people and and who knows what <laughs> bubbles out of the ether tomorrow as far as a variant right like something could pop out into the world uh, that changes the game entirely and then we're all right back in the soup Well, let's uh, hope not, for sure. Uh, Shane, thanks so so much for bringing us up to date on what's happening there. Always great to talk with you. You as well. Stay safe. Thanks for being with us. We are going to have more from the questions and answer period from today's COVID-19 briefing a bit later on this half hour. And nothing huge as far as the restrictions, but Dr. Bonnie Henry was saying that as we get further along with the numbers looking good as far as hospitalizations down and severe cases down, it is going to be looking at reviewing and lifting the restrictions. She did say it's not going to be the flick of a switch. It's going to be dialing back in uh, looking towards uh, about mid-February. So we'll talk more about that coming up. Right now, though, we want to shift gears a little bit and talk about Lunar New Year. And joining me to do that is Lorraine Lowe, Executive Director of the Dr. Sun Yat-sen Classical Chinese Garden. Thanks so much for coming back on the show. Hi, Jill. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you as well. And I'm so glad you were able to come back because last time we talked to you, which wasn't that long ago, sadly, we were talking about vandalism and graffiti and how that's been plaguing the neighborhood. Not that that's gone away, but we wanted to talk to you more about Lunar New Year and the celebration and what it's all about today. Uh, So can you talk a little bit about what's planned or what's happening? 
So uh, we did have a, a mini celebration just this past weekend. Uh, we will be having more celebrations this coming weekend. And, you know, back by popular demand, Hansing Athletic Club, they will be coming back to the garden on Saturday to do a special lion dance for us at 1.30 in the afternoon. Um, also, there was also other things happening in and around Chinatown. And I just want to encourage everybody to come down. Uh, we still have our storytelling, the calligraphy, the craft that's happening. Uh, Chinese Canadian Museum is doing something, I believe. And come visit the Storytelling Centre. Uh, eat at the authentic Chinese restaurants and these the legacy businesses would love to have your support. Yeah, exactly. And, and supporting people and getting kind of back to, to that place where we can do that and, and do that safely. Can you talk a little bit about Lunar New Year and the, the significance of Lunar New Year and, and what we're actually celebrating and, and kind of taking stock of? Sure. So Lunar New Year, um, it, it was for myself, you know, growing up in Southeast Vancouver, it was predominantly a Chinese Canadian, Indo-Canadian community. So I think within the last, I would say, five to 10 years, Lunar New Year um, has become more inclusive and everybody has their own sets of traditions and we're all celebrating the same positive thing. It's blessings of prosperity, good health and good fortune. Um, and, and, you know, it's not just China. It's South Korea, Vietnam, Singapore, Malaysia, Indonesia. And I think it's great that we're recognizing the importance of this diverse Asian diaspora of communities around the world, celebrating this very important, significant celebration. And again, it, it's focused on the positive. So, you know, the year of the water tiger, it comes every 60 years. And this is a prosperous year. Uh, the year of the water tiger, um, it is an auspicious sign of strength, exercising evils and braveness. And um, Chinese people believe that what you do at the beginning of the new year will affect your luck in the coming year. So, you know, things like we don't want to wash our hair, we don't want to clean the house on today because it's, it's, giving away, it's washing away the bad luck. So all that stuff is being done on the eve, which was yesterday. I've, I've had my family clean the whole house. We had a nice sit-down dinner together as a family. And it's all about being together and, and having that togetherness and celebrating together. Hmm, that's uh, that's amazing. And I don't think anybody needs to be told twice, don't clean your house or take the day off from doing that. So what a great side benefit to to this uh, happening today. Uh, You mentioned that this is the year of the water water tiger and with the the different symbols and the different animals, what should people be aware of if they're born uh, in the year of the water tiger? Well, there there are natural leaders and, you know, tigers are adventurous and ambitious. Um, but I think that the, the key here is uh, being strong, it's resilient, uh, it's being brave. And I think everybody, after the two years of being having all these restrictions and stuff, I would think that the year of the water tiger would, would be a great year for us to come back, to be more energetic and, and to kind of flourish and, and just, you know, hopefully 2022 is going to be uh, a great year for everybody and we're going to have a, a, a lot of growth. Uh, we often see, uh, and we do see around the city and in different parts right now, uh, the lanterns, uh, lanterns uh, and a lot of uh, the banners and a lot of the red paper. What is the significance of the color red and that red paper? 
so red is actually, uh, it's good luck. It represents good luck. And, you know, there's a story called the story of Nina. It, it talks about why um, we do have red. It scares away the, the bad demons and stuff. But, you know, that's a whole different story. And I encourage everybody to visit our website because we do have the storytelling that's on there on the link. Um, but, yes, it's definitely giving out hongbaos. Uh, which is very popular in our culture, Chinese culture, but it's not necessarily the same for, let's just say, Koreans. It's still a decorative envelope, but it's, it's again, the, 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 uh, the, the bigger message here is no negativity um, and, and a sign of giving that as uh, good fortune and prosperity. And and what do you say to people that maybe if people aren't uh, followers of, of the different religions or maybe they've not participated in the celebrations before and are a bit hesitant? Because I think also nobody wants to come across as offensive or, or come across maybe as naive about what's happening for Lunar New Year, but still wants to be respectful and celebrate and, and be part of that. So how do you kind of find that balance? I think it, it's just the general message here is, you know, nothing unlucky, nothing negative. We want to have a positive vibe. Everything should be about positivity, prosperity, good health. I don't think there, it doesn't matter what religion you are. I just think, you know, celebrating the idea of Lunar New Year all across the board for everyone should be inclusive. And I think it's just a good positive energy and just the idea of community and, and bringing people together. That's what it should be about. That's a great way of looking at it, I think, or a great way to include so many people. Um, how long then, then depending, I guess, on, on the cycle of the moon and where the moon is and the lunar calendar, so how long uh, will people be celebrating or how long does this last for? So in our culture, the Chinese New Year, it's also known as Spring Festival, Chunji. So it lasts for 16 days, uh, starting from yesterday, the New Year's Eve, to the Lantern Festival Day. And each of the days um, has a name. So, you know, there's a certain day for prayer, for visiting relatives, setting off firecrackers, and uh, preparing for a Lantern Festival. And can you talk a bit about the lanterns as well and the significance of the lanterns? Well, when you set off a lantern, it's almost like it's it's a rebirth. So I know in, in, in certain cultures, in certain Asian cultures, it's about letting go of their past and, and you know, moving on. It's like a rebirth, a renaissance. Um, and, and usually the red to symbolize good fortune. And, you know, it, it's a way of releasing any negative energy and wishing good luck and good fortune in the coming year. All right. So I think, as you mentioned, we could all use a little bit of that and take part in some of that moving forward. Thank you so much, Lorraine, for joining us. And again, people can go to the website and learn more about everything that's happening. But thank you so much for joining us today and talking about this. Thank you, Jill. Happy New Year.